Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. What role does money play in a child's development? New research suggests it might affect brain activity. A study that gave low-income mothers cash stipends for the first year of their children's lives seems to have increased their baby's cognitive development. Later, you'll hear more from Dylan Belial, who researches this issue at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. But first, we get the facts from Catherine Magnuson, who co-authored the study. She's director of the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she knows this news is big. I think they're pointing out to the fact that this is one of the first studies that's been able to take a really rigorous approach to looking at the impact of providing uh, cash support to low-income mothers and seeing whether it affects various aspects of child development. We've had some really good evidence about in older children and adolescents, but it's hard to measure outcomes in young children. It's hard to see differences. But by looking at their brain activity, we're able to see early indications that this might be quite important for their later development. So is it clear how the money increased their brain activity? Um, We don't know that. We're collecting a lot of data in this study, and we're going to be spending a lot of time trying to figure out what are the various pathways by which money can really help support children's development as an investment that parents make in their children. How are they spending it? Um, What does it enable them to do with their children? But we don't know the answer yet for how it might be operating. Because I I have to say, Professor, I was also, my mind was also boggled trying to figure that piece out as well. I was trying to determine, you know, why the money would have altered uh, brain development. And I know that some other researchers who have chimed in have said some things like, you know, it could have purchased better food for them uh, or health care. It could have reduced levels of stress on, on the parents, um, allowed the moms to work less. You know, they're sort of varying reasons uh, why uh, this could have correlated. Tell us how exactly your study was conducted. Oh, absolutely. So um, we set out to try and understand how increasing support and reducing poverty among mothers with young children, newborns, could affect their lives and their children's development. So to do this, we decided that what we should do is recruit moms directly at the time of their child's birth. And we did that in 12 different hospitals in four U.S. areas. So our studies in New Orleans, New York City, Omaha, and the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. After they gave birth, We enrolled mothers in a study first, so they enrolled in a longitudinal study about their family life and their children's development, Mm -hmm. and then they were randomized to either get a small cash gift or a large cash gift, so $333 a month or just $20 a month. And by following these mothers over time, the money was loaded on a debit card. They're free to use it as they want in whatever way they want with no strings attached. 
and we are collecting annual data on them over time to see how this affects various aspects of their family life as well as their child's development. And the data that's been published in this study is from the first year of data collection when the children were just one year old. It was before the pandemic that we collected this data, so we have it only on this sample that was interviewed before the pandemic hit because we had to stop in-person data collection. And it's about 435 children with their brain activity measured through EEGs. And what we see is that there is higher frequency activity among the children whose mother was getting the higher cash gift. And this activity is important because in other studies, it's linked to uh, the development of thinking and learning at later ages. Interesting. Let's bring you in here, Dylan. Tell us your thoughts on the study. Yeah. So first, thank you so much for bringing it on. And I just wanted to thank Dr. Magnuson for, you know, her years of doing vital research on this. This is such an important and timely um, study to be having a conversation about. And yes, I mean, I, I, I agree. It provides some of the clearest evidence to date um, that if we make sure that parents have stable income, it can have a positive impact on their children. One thing that I wanted to sort of comment on, I mean, you were having a conversation about you know, how may this come about? And I think, you know, from our research, um, kind of doing a similar study, you know, not among parents with infants, but among parents with children of all ages, um, we found evidence that recurring cash payments increases families' um, economic well-being and their financial stability um, because they're able to pay their bills on time, they have less food insecurity, Mm -hmm. which in turn reduce parents' experience of financial stress and and reported depressive symptoms, right? And so if parents are less stressed, this may translate to positive impacts for their children, right? And so obviously, as Catherine and her team do more research, we'll find out more, but this is really exciting and um, I hope it, you know, sort of pushes us forward in this conversation. Well, Dylan, it also, it comes at a time when the president's struggling to revive his uh, proposal to expand that child tax credit in the Mm -hmm. Build Back Better package. Families actually got their last payments back in the middle of December. So can you remind us how that expansion helped families here in Illinois? Sure. Um, So we're definitely learning more, you know, about the impact of the child tax payments um, in Illinois. Um, Using the Census Household Pulse Survey, uh, research out of the Social Policy Institute at Washington University um, found that Illinois parents were primarily using their payments for basic expenses like food, bills, debt, um, rent, and mortgage. And they also found that a lot of parents are saving their payments as well, so maybe, you know, saving for later expenses and so forth. In addition, they also found reductions in and food insecurity, so very similar to you know, our research and other research you know, relating this to the impact that this has on families and their, and their well-being. So also, you know, just in total, um, it's estimated to bring um, $3.5 billion into the hands of Illinois families specifically, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is really a, a big deal for Illinois residents, particularly at this time. Professor, can you share whether you think this study could help make the case to bring that expansion back? I think what this study can really contribute is the importance, and and Dylan said this quite well, the importance of thinking about these tax credits and other public benefits as a way that parents are enabled to invest in their kids. Some folks spend time thinking about whether it will keep people from working as much as perhaps they want them to. But I think it really puts a central light on the importance of thinking about child well-being and understanding, you know, what's really good for families. 
And I think this evidence contributes as well as a whole body of literature um, that has come before and will come after to suggesting that we do know what families and kids need. And one thing they do need to be able to meet their expenses. Low-income families, all families, have a lot of unexpected expenses, and it's expensive to raise children as well. So I hope this will contribute. And I do think, you know, there's more to learn for sure. But um, increasingly, the evidence is pointing to the importance of thinking about children's well-being as we have these conversations about tax credits and payments. And, Professor, as we talk about how you sort of divided the two groups for your your study, uh, one receiving uh, about $20 a month, the other uh, a little over 300 were the amounts adjusted for cost of living? just based on the states Um, they lived in? Yeah, they were not. (laughs) We get that question a lot, right? So people will point out that it's much more expensive to live in New York City than Omaha, Nebraska. Um, Unlike the tax credit, we also didn't adjust for the number of kids that the mother might have had. So these weren't all families with their first baby. Some had older siblings. Um, And so ours does differ from tax credits in that sense and some other policies that do adjust for family size. We were basing our amount on something that we felt was policy relevant. Mm -hmm. So the amount of money we were giving out was something akin to what people might get in terms of food assistance through SNAP or through uh, something like the earned income tax credit um, at that time. So it's closely aligned to what a family might get in terms of the child tax credit if they had only one child. Dylan, we talked earlier about how you've sort of looked into the benefits of these periodic payments uh, to families here in our area. You and your colleagues also note that more actions needed to address systemic and structural racism and classism and sexism. Can you talk a bit more about that? Sure, definitely. So, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that marginalized communities are more likely to experience what we call systemic stressors. And so these are stressors that are brought on by environmental and and economic factors, and these are unequally shared across different groups. So we might think about economic stressors as things like having a job that doesn't pay a living wage or it doesn't provide stable income and so forth. This economic context combines with sort of the legacies of racialized exploitation, exclusion, and segregation that's really resulted in disproportionate higher rates of poverty among families of color, right? And so communities of color, particularly black and native communities, have experienced several centuries of exclusion and and segregation. And so they're disproportionately exposed to, again, these systemic stressors, right? And so we need to also look at sort of the structural and systemic inequalities as well. You know, payments, whether it's the child tax credit or baby's first years, can really help families sort of manage stressors and maybe even build a base to kind of do a little bit better. But really, if we want sort of, you know, broad change, we really have to look at these bigger systems that are really getting in the way of folks sort of having that mobility that they need. Professor, you know, there are critics of cash assistance programs, and they they argue that families are going to waste or abuse the money or that the payments will discourage them from going out and getting jobs. How can your study help reframe the discussion around income support programs for these families? Um, I'm always, we get this question fairly regularly. And the first thing that I always like to point out is that the concern that families will spend this money in, if you will, irresponsible ways, is not supported by one shred of evidence from lots of prior studies that say low-income families spend their money in exactly the same way that middle-class families do. The only difference between them is that low-income families generally have less money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I first have to just push back that that 
is a question that is steeped in um, what I see as really negative stereotypes about the poor and absolutely unconnected to the reality of the lives of poor families and poor communities. Um, second, we are able to look at how families are spending money. And one thing that we see very preliminarily, we have some work that's not yet published on this, but that we're working on, is that there is no increase in self-reported purchases or use of drugs, alcohol, or tobacco. So that sort of trope of, you know, parents rushing out and drinking away the money is just not supported by evidence. And it's never been supported by evidence. It's purely people's, you know, negative perceptions of poor individuals. And so we hope to learn a lot more about what they are spending the money on. You know, I think work is a really interesting point. You know, we heard a lot about from some politicians about a concern that things like unemployment insurance during the pandemic was keeping people home. For anyone that's the parent of a newborn, you know that you're constantly working, whether that's work outside of the home or work inside of the home. And I think it's really important that we think about what's good for families Mm -hmm. and the idea that the low-wage labor market is not always a wonderful place to be a worker. And so, you know, at best, all of prior economic literature suggests that we might see very minor reductions in employment. And I think it's worth a conversation about whether we expect mothers of newborns and fathers of newborns both to be working full time outside of the home. So uh, we have data on it and we're working on trying to figure out what we can learn from it. But I think these discussions really come from people's negative perceptions of what it means to be poor and a a real lack of understanding and knowledge about poverty rather than a real scientific or evidence-based perspective. Good things for some uh, policymakers to keep in mind there. Uh, Dylan, what are your recommendations? What kind of policies and programs do you think can help address these issues? Sure. Well, you know, at this moment, you know, there's the continued conversation about the child tax credit and, you know, expanding and so forth. And I think we've seen a lot of benefits from it so far, you know, where Catherine and her team is, you know, publishing this study and, and doing additional research. There's lots of other research that really shows the, the positive impacts of providing families with a recurring source of income, right? And so I think um, just to kind of add on to, you know, talking about work, you know, in our work, we actually even also find that, you know, having stable cash payments can actually help families maintain their stable employment, right? Because they're able to pay for childcare, for transportation costs. Mm-hmm. If they have, you know, hours in their work that are fluctuating, these payments can sort of bridge the gap that they're experiencing. So I think there's also, for some families, you know, it may actually increase their employment or actually maybe just the stability of it. So I think that's another conversation as well to be adding to it. That's Dylan Belisle with the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And we've also been talking with Catherine Magnuson with the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you both. Well, that's it for today's Reset. This equity moment is teaching us even more that where a person ends up in life depends on so much more than simply a standardized test score, but rather on where we invest and in whom we invest. To get more fact-based science on the equity gap, keep subscribing to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. And please come back tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.